Chapter 6, Tala Ward, 26 November 2014, 20 kilometers south of Kirkuk, 14.30 hours. From the back of the truck, I scoped the ground that lay ahead and then stripped off one of the black gloves protecting my hands from the desert cold. The wind quickly sapped the warmth from my exposed skin, but my fingers moved quickly, dialing the lens to focus on the chaotic scene of battle ahead. Through the lens, I could see a long earthen berm stretching across the barren landscape. Its concrete bunkers and redoubts manned by a mixed force of Kurdish Peshmerga and PKK soldiers numbering in the hundreds, perhaps even into the thousands. Even at this distance, their small individual figures were recognizable. Some were firing from behind the cover of green sandbag fortifications, while most seemed to be milling about the base of the defensive berm where enemy bullets could not reach. I tucked the scope safely into a pocket in my combat pack, pulled the black glove back over my hand, and looked on as a mobile rocket battery prepared to let loose another salvo of Katusha rockets. Its crew buzzed about the massive truck with the launcher attached to its bed. When the missiles fired from the stacked tubes, they made a howling, screaming noise that cut through the metallic chatter of small arms fire at the front. This is it. This is what I came here for, I thought. The white Toyota pickup truck idled briefly, allowing me and the other armed men a chance to survey the unfolding battle before slowly rolling on. Now we were just 20 meters away from the wall of dirt that separates Kurdistan from the Islamic State. Soon, very soon. I began to instinctively check my gear, the action on my M16 rifle, the straps on my tack vest, the clips on my helmet. The small kinds of things that soldiers do to maximize preparedness, and more importantly, pretend that we have some control over our own destiny. The late afternoon sun was trying to emerge from behind a clouded sky, but its struggling rays did little to take the chill out of the onset of winter. The driver turned the wheel abruptly to bring the truck's course parallel to the length of the Kurdish defensive berm. The white Toyota was indistinguishable from the dozens of other trucks of the same make, model, and color that were parked at random along the front. And the Kurds manning the berm's firing step paid us newcomers little mind, as ISIS was just 70 meters away, entrenched in their own fortified mounds of sand lying along the opposite bank of a slow-moving canal. Across the stagnant north-south waterway was the small village locals called Tal Al Ward, and beyond that, a large hill that dominated the surrounding countryside for miles around. You couldn't miss it. In a terrain marked by its uniform flatness, the hill was the only physical feature of note and an obvious strategic position. It rose in length for 500 meters until its ends tapered back to the desert floor, and it was topped with a sunken road that twisted in concealed fashions along its spine. Mounds of dirt, concrete bunkers, and trenches adorned its crest and sheltered the dug-in jihadi defenders. From up high, the jihadis held a vantage point from which they could rain bullets down on the Kurds with impunity. A quick look was all it took to tell me that if we were to beat the enemy on this day, we would have to climb and secure the hill's malicious slopes. Now, a hill of this size doesn't exist naturally in central Iraq. It was created out of necessity and for survival. When ISIS forces spilled out of Syria and blitzed towards Erbil and Baghdad and Kirkuk in June 2014, it set off a frenzy of construction. 
bulldozers, backhoes, and all varieties of heavy machinery were enlisted to scrape, pile, and shape the earth in one nearly continuous line of defensive fortifications that stretched from Iran to what used to be the Syrian border. A thousand kilometers of opposing trenches stretch all the way across north-central Iraq. It was very much First World War-style warfare. On one side, the Kurdish forces defend their homeland, and on the other side, the black flags of ISIS fly. A modern-day no-man's land separates the two forces. In most places, that no-man's land can be measured in kilometers, but at Talal Ward, it could have been done with 50 meters of tape. The construction crews assigned to dig the hills and the trenches learned early the wisdom of bolting thick metal plates over their cabs to save themselves from jihadi snipers. The impromptu construction likely saved Kurdistan from the customary rape and pillage that follows the march of the Caliphate's black and white flags. To this day, whenever ground is taken or lost, the heavy machinery is never far behind, ready to build the next series of defensive works that mark the shifting tide of battle and war. PKK Ali rolled down the window and called out something from the cab of the truck, and immediately his men began getting ready. Brothahan knocked on my helmet with a closed fist and used his thumb to make a cutting motion across his neck. When the driver applied the brakes, everyone jumped out from the truck bed onto the hard dirt. In the Canadian Army, there would have been orders and a plan, but this was Iraq, and even if there was a strategy, I couldn't understand the language it was spoken in. I hopped from the truck and ran for the base of the 4.5 meter high earthen berm, M16 firmly in hand. My GoPro camera and battle gear rattled against my body, minus the helmet, which I left behind in the truck. Brothahan was sending me a message earlier with his throat-cutting hand gesture. Think about it. If you're an ISIS sniper, who are you going to aim at? The generic Kurd or the white guy with the $500 military helmet on? Ditching the helmet made me less of a target. I wasted little time in scrambling up to the berm's ledge to get a view of the surroundings. On my left and right, men fired their weapons, mostly Kalashnikovs, at an opposing earthwork that rose from across the canal. ISIS fighters were quick to return the fire. Their bearded faces would bob up and let loose bursts of fire and then would vanish just as quickly into a myriad of foxholes and trenches. The Kurds on my flank fought in the same way, but with clean-shaven faces. A mere 12 hours previous, the berms, the village, and the hill had all been securely in Peshmerga hands, giving them a commanding vantage point from which to spot an ISIS attack from miles around. Yet ISIS now held the high ground, and by extension, the village. One of the great ironies of this war is that ISIS is much better armed and equipped than the good guys, courtesy of the United States. When the Iraqi army fled before the ISIS advance on Mosul and northern Iraq in June 2014, they left behind two divisions worth of sophisticated American weaponry. Tanks, armored vehicles, assault weapons, even attack helicopters fell into the hands of the Islamic State. Kurdish weapons are antiquated by comparison. The Kurds rely mostly on relics of the Soviet era, giving ISIS the tactical advantage that enabled their forces to sweep across Syria and Iraq in a modern-day blitzkrieg. The previous night, ISIS had attacked the Kurdish FOB at Tel Awad and swept up the commanding hillside. It was rumored amongst the Kurds that ISIS fighters carried night vision goggles and under the cover of darkness delivered a surprise attack that killed many of their comrades in their trenches and drove the survivors from the position. That's why we were called in. We had to retake the hill at Tel Awad.
Kurdish defensive lines at Tal Ward. 1,500 hours. Rounds were coming in hot, and the Kurds took turns alternating between ducking their heads and firing their rifles at the enemy. I had come to Iraq to fight and was happy at the chance to finally get in some trigger time. Once on the firing step, I blasted away at the enemy entrenchments. Suppression fire, but I had traveled over 10,000 kilometers for this opportunity, and it felt good nonetheless. I emptied a clip, fired off another burst from my M16, and then slid back down the berm, taking a seat and a long line of Kurds sitting along the sheltered slope that was completely covered in garbage, mostly plastic bags and discarded water bottles. It was a safe place to be, so long as an ISIS mortar shell didn't plunge from the sky. But you can't hide from that kind of death anyway. Small arms fire rattled up and down the line. Katusha rockets screamed overhead. Men sat around smoking cigarettes and chatting. Others scurried about with cell phones and rocket-propelled grenades. An attractive black-haired woman just a little older than Zendi strolled by with a long sniper rifle braced over her shoulder with one hand. The small arms fire would rise and fall at random, but there was always this strange background noise emanating throughout the entire front. It sounded like a thousand voices were crying out in various emotions. This is what I heard. The ferocity of the small arms fire rose once more. They're getting some, I shouted to a young man my own age, sitting just a few feet away. The Kurd wore a closely shaved mohawk and looked at me with a bewildered expression. That happened quite a bit. Nobody expected to see me there. PKK Ali put a hand on my shoulder and motioned for me to follow him. We hurried along the base of the berm and through the tangled groupings of soldiers until a large, concrete-fortified redoubt blocked our path, marking the entrance to the one bridge that spanned the canal. A small cluster of men waited there, including a cameraman from a Kurdish news agency who wore a wide-brimmed straw hat and a baby blue dress shirt tucked into his trousers. The sight of the camera held over the man's shoulder reminded me to turn on my own GoPro camera strapped across my chest. I peeked around the edge of the bunker to the opposite bank of the canal, where only moments before a body of about 50 Kurdish fighters had stormed the bridge and made a beachhead. They were clawing their way up the ISIS-held position and into the village while taking heavy fire. Some were wounded, others were dead. I could easily hear the rhythmic thump-thump-thump of a Soviet-made douche heavy machine gun, which ISIS had strategically placed atop one of the Big Hill's bunkers. The Dushk is a beast of a weapon that can take down low-flying helicopters and can easily tear a man in two with rounds the size of a fist. Clumps of dirt spouted from the ground surrounding the breach, marking the ferocity of the incoming enemy rounds. There was only one way across the canal, a single bridge about 50 meters long that spanned the water. 
Like the rest of the country, the Kurds were on one side and ISIS was on the other. PKK Ali shoved my shoulder again. There was no common language between us, but the meaning was clear as he gestured to the bridge and the beachhead in front. I looked at him and nodded my head in understanding and then agreement. If we were going to cross, there could be no hesitation. No time to think or question. I had come here to kill the enemy. The enemy was over the bridge, so that's where I had to go. While the mass of Kurdish soldiers continued firing their weapons, PKK Ali began sprinting from the cover of the protective berm and then raced for the bridge. I followed as quick as I could, knowing that if I stopped to think about the madness of our charge, I would be dead. Bullets were snapping all around, hitting the bridge and the water in the canal below. It was a straight dash from one killing zone on the bridge to another on the far bank. I could hear and feel my heart beating, the adrenaline pumping through my muscles as I reached the halfway mark of the bridge and then kept going, fighting hard to keep up with the older man's pace. My legs felt weighted down by stones, but it was all in my head. My body was fit and I pushed myself faster and harder, knowing that every second spent on the bridge increased the odds of taking a piece of lead. A bullet struck a steel berm. The sound clanged in my ears just as we cleared the final meters of the bridge, and then we galloped for the breach in the ISIS line. PKK Ali shouted something incoherently at me before quickly blending into the tip of the Kurdish spear that was now moving into the village. Once ISIS's defensive works were punctured at the bridge, their fighters withdrew from the riverbank and into the village, leaving their dead behind. In hindsight, the enemy's first defensive berm was relatively lightly defended. I don't think they ever intended to hold the works along the canal or the village for any length of time, but rather their goal was to conduct a fighting withdrawal whereby ground was traded for lives. ISIS wanted to weaken the attacking Kurdish force before we reached their main position atop the hill. It was a sound strategy, but the Kurds were willing to oblige in the exchange even though it meant casualties, but that's the way of war in Iraq. Once inside, the sounds of shooting and yelling echoed off the hovels and down the streets of the village. Every ramshackle house, every window, every stone wall was a potential ambush site. The Kurdish assault force was about 50 strong, minus one man who got hit twice in the arm almost right away. I moved with them through the confusing maze of streets and alleyways that were littered with rubbish. We moved cautiously, other times at a run until we arrived at a concrete wall that marked the end of the cluster of homes. The large fortified hill now loomed immediately to our front, and I could see it being raked by small arms fire. A Kurdish fighter poked his head over the village wall, which provoked an instantaneous spray of fire from ISIS fighters. The Kurds responded by sticking their rifles over the wall, firing blindly at the enemy. Most carried Kalashnikovs, but a few of the luckier ones were armed, like me, with western rifles, either bought in local markets or stripped from enemy corpses. I took my turn and fired a burst over the wall and then stepped back, brushing up against a unit commander who was talking furiously into a cell phone with a voice raised above the crescendo of rifle fire. There are not many radios in the Peshmerga, so orders and the progress of battle are relayed to command centers and subordinates through personal electronic devices. The presence of cell phones in combat seemed strange, but even stranger was the reappearance of the Kurdish cameraman who was diligently capturing the chaos of war for the news. He scurried about, immersed in his work, getting close-up shots of the fighters and paying no attention at all to the pieces of the concrete wall chipping into the air from the incoming rounds. Suddenly the cry of DASH rang through the air and there was confusion. One of the commanders got a text on his phone that there was an ISIS force hidden inside the village and we were about to get ambushed. 
Some of the PKK even started backtracking from the protective wall. They were afraid of being killed, or worse, captured. PKK Elise sent me off with a half dozen other men and we patrolled about 50 meters through the village, circling houses and climbing over stone walls, making sure the area of operation was clear. We came across the bodies of jihadis, Kurds and civilians. Some had been killed hours before and some more recently. Yet the perimeter was clear. The thrust of the Kurdish spearhead had seemingly cleared ISIS from the canal and the village. Now it was time to retake the hill. The original force of 50 men had been augmented by a few more reinforcements from across the canal, mostly PKK, though there was a sprinkling of Peshmerga as well. A rudimentary plan to seize the high ground directly in front was devised under the strain of incoming fire. The commanders talked amongst themselves and on their phones, and then the order was given. It was not a glamorous plan, the kind the great military minds of history like Napoleon or Stonewall Jackson would be proud of. It was simple, direct and to the point. A frontal charge up the hill. No real tactics involved at all, just brute force and an acceptance of casualties to achieve the objective. Years of war have made life cheap in Iraq. Maybe that's the way it had to be in this brutal land. But now it was time for the real fighting and the real killing to begin. Chapter 7. The Greatest Day of My Life Today I bore witness to intense, savage combat to retake a small town. I came through unscathed, but the same could not be said for all of us, including some unlucky ISIS. Dylan Hillier, Facebook, 26 November 2014 Up! I rose from the ground, panting and focused. The village was behind me and the enemy was to the front. There was only one way to go, and that was forward. He sees me down! The command echoed in my mind. I grunted as I once again buried my face into the ground to hide from enemy fire. Up! He sees me down! Up! He sees me down! It's a drill every Canadian soldier learns. Infantrymen in the Canadian Army know what it means to be lying in an empty field of snow, wheezing air, waiting for a sergeant to bark that first word, Up! And the soldier lifts from the ground, weighted down with his battle gear, and begins to sprint. But his legs and arms pump for a mere fraction of a second, certainly not enough time to build any momentum. Before the sergeant shouts the second part of the drill, he sees me down. And on that last word, the soldier drops back to the ground, having covered maybe five meters. The soldier gasps, looks to the end of the field, which seems no closer, and waits for the sergeant to bark the command once more. And so the process continues until your lungs scream for mercy and muscles begin to seize. It's a Cold War era drill devised to limit a soldier's exposure while simultaneously covering ground in a frontal attack. Up. He sees me down. Up. He sees me down. Up. And I rose once more. Only this time I ignored the second part of the command and maintained the sprint until I was within reach of a small berm. I dove and embraced the shelter. Bullets were snapping the air and raking the hillside from every direction and I used the lull in my drills to recalibrate my situational awareness. The Kurds had begun moving up the slope, but ISIS was contesting the ground from behind the countless bunkers and trenches that laced the hillside. Their bearded faces would emerge to fire a few shots and then they would dip back down into the labyrinth of fortifications. A mixed cluster of a half-dozen Peshmerga and PKK scrambled to the small berm that I had taken shelter behind, 
and their rush provoked a flurry of bullets that blew up the surrounding ground. The Kurds hugged the Iraqi earth, just like me, until the fire abated. And then, like madmen, they gathered their courage and stormed towards the next trench. The attacking spearhead moved in small groups like this, ducking, hiding, and firing as they went. There was no way to avoid casualties in this type of fighting, and men went down dying and clutching at ghastly wounds as they charged forward. But the Kurdish progress was undeniable. I increased the tempo of my pace in order to stride over a dead jihadi who lay in my path. His body was a blur of black clothing and reddened skin, evidence that the enemy was taking casualties too. Suddenly, a group of four bearded men sprouted from a hole in the ground, flushed up from the Kurdish advance like a covey of quail in the tall grass. They ran for the top of the hill and the safety of the sunken road at the top. If only they could reach that final burn, they would be safe, at least for a while, and they ran with the fear of death behind them. This was the first time I took deliberate aim at a man. I brought the M16 rifle to my shoulder, and with the flanking Kurds beside me, fired rapid bursts at the enemy. Blood misted the air, and at least two of the ISIS fighters staggered over the lip of the berm that marked the main enemy works, running along the spine of the hill. Unlucky bastards, I said to myself. Scenes like this repeated as the Kurdish drive picked up momentum. Peshmerga and PKK soldiers were streaming across the bridge now and into the village. The battle was reaching its climax, and the ISIS fighters prepared as best they could for their last stand. The battle would be won or lost along the berms guarding the sunken road that ran along the length of the hill's spine, and it was this position that ISIS had withdrawn to. Their bunkers swarmed with jihadi fighters, and the heavy douche machine gun kept thumping away at the easy Kurdish targets, attempting to gain the hill. The sunken road along the top of the hill was concealed from the view of observers below. You couldn't see it from the village or the base of the hill, but it was there, and protected by bunkers, and zigzagging trenches that went along the length of it. But the road also swooped down to the base of the hill, and if we could reach it, we would have the opportunity to flank the enemy and start rolling up their position. The ad hoc section of Kurdish fighters that formed around me broke cover again and stormed over the berm protecting the lower reaches of the sunken road. Two of the four ISIS fighters we had fired at lay dead on the dirt road, one with his back patterned in a tight grouping of bullet holes. More blood trailed up the road, leading to a concrete bunker and indicating that wounded combatants might be close by. The group approached the structure cautiously, and for the first time, I realized that Brothahan was with me. I hardly knew the man, but I was happy that a vaguely familiar face was present. Brothahan was the one who approached the bunker first. There was no cutting of the pie technique as would be done in the Canadian Army when a soldier slowly and cautiously moves in a pie-shaped fashion across the opening of a room in order to properly work the angles of sight. Instead, Brothahan stuck his gun around the bunker's entrance and sprayed its inside. We checked after, but there was no one inside. They got lucky, but then we got lucky next. Right away, bullets started whistling by us. If you can hear the whoosh of a bullet, it's no further than a couple meters away. Luckily, no one was hit. We darted behind the bunker's concrete siding and returned the fire. The jihadis withdrew further up the road, and we moved on in pursuit, like a pack of wolves after a wounded stag. My ad hoc section darted in short bursts to avoid the enemy fire, which was constant, and increased in ferocity the closer we got to the top. It was a running gunfight. 
We were firing our weapons relentlessly, more to suppress the enemy than anything else, but a few times jihadis lined up with our sights. The road and the hill were partially enveloped in smoke, which created an eerie feeling as more Kurds piled up the slope and spilled over the protective berm, giving steam and confidence to the attack. But the thumping douche told that the battle was not over and that ISIS was fighting on. We pressed the attack, past more trenches, past bunkers and blue tarps with 50-gallon water tanks that marked where the enemy had slept the night before. Kurdish flags, the red, white, and green tricolor with a yellow sunburst in the middle, fluttered above some of these strong points, but that meant nothing. ISIS was using deception. They're good at it. Their fighters will wear Kurdish civilian clothes to get close and will fly Kurdish flags to indicate that areas are safe and under Kurdish control. But these are carefully planned traps meant to lull victims into a false sense of security. Along the sunken road were abandoned white Toyota pickup trucks, the same type we rode to battle in, parked haphazardly, some with their windows and tires blown out. I looked down and saw another dead ISIS fighter. He was leaning against a flat tire, but I had only a moment to study the body for movement before a Kurd aired the corpse out with a burst from his own Kalashnikov. You can't take chances in Iraq, and if the jihadi wasn't dead before, he certainly was now. The group paused to take stock of the situation. In battle, you only know what you can see around you. It was clear to me that, at least in our section of the field, we were winning. There were more enemy bodies on the ground, but at the same time we knew the fighting was still going strong along the top of the hill. My section had grown to maybe 20 men by this point, maturing from an infantry section to a platoon. I felt good. I felt we were winning this battle. We halted the advance for a breather and to take stock of the fluid situation while waiting for the commander to make a phone call on his cell phone. This is when we got hit pretty bad. For some reason, there was a large gap in the berm facing west. I can only guess that it was to allow vehicles a quick escape down the face of the hill instead of using the switchbacks of the road. A number of ISIS fighters appeared through this gap on the reverse slope. They were running from something and they scared the crap out of us. As soon as they opened fire, I saw Brothahan go down. He was within arm's reach of me and got zipped in the face. Everyone dove for whatever cover we could find and began trading gunfire. It was beyond intense. A few Kurds tried to outflank the enemy, but they got pinned down from more enemy fire that came from God knows where. There was blood in the air when Brothahan got hit, and I had assumed he'd been killed outright. That would be the logical assumption when someone is shot in the face. But a moment after lying on the ground motionless, Brothahan began to twitch and then started clutching at his face, which was a mess of blood and bone. It was pathetic and heart-wrenching to see. The Kurds called out to Brothahan through the buzz of bullets whipping overhead, probably telling him to stay still because he was drawing fire to himself. Their voices cried with hopelessness. This man is going to die on the ground right in front of me, I thought. It was just a matter of time before another enemy bullet struck him. I broke cover and rushed towards the stricken Kurd about a dozen meters away. I shouldn't have done it. It was reckless. It was stupid. But I wasn't thinking. I was just reacting. I think it was my training that kicked in. There's an unwritten rule that you don't leave a wounded man behind. My hands reached under his shoulders and started dragging him towards the closest cover I could find. Together, 
Brothahan and I made easy targets, and the enemy bullets zeroed in on us. Thankfully, the rest of the Kurds helped by firing their weapons to give as much suppression fire as they could until the jihadis fell back down the hill. Brothahan was moaning in pain, and I dropped to the ground with exhaustion. My body heaved, and my lungs took deep breaths from the exertion as I rummaged through the combat bag for the meager stash of medical supplies that I carried with me. A couple of Kurds gathered around the wounded man, not knowing what to do. Tell him he's going to be okay. Tell him that. I shouted at them, even though I knew they wouldn't understand. The truth was that I was saying those words for my own benefit, more than anything else. I needed to convince myself. I pulled out a roll of medical gauze from my bag, and with hands shaking from the pumping adrenaline, began the process of patching up the disgusting wound. In the Canadian Army, every soldier is a medic. It starts in basic military training when you take a beginner first aid course and the training builds with each course completed as you advance through the ranks. In the lead up to Afghanistan, I underwent extensive combat first aid training, as did every other soldier on deployment. These individual soldiering skills were necessary in a war that killed over 150 Canadians and seriously wounded thousands more. The simple act of carrying a tourniquet and knowing how to use it saved Canadian lives in Afghanistan. It's a lot different in the Kurdish army. There is essentially no first aid training, knowledge, or equipment. A couple of Kurds stood by watching as I unrolled the gauze. They were probably good soldiers, but utterly useless in first aid. They had no idea what to do. If it's possible to be lucky after getting shot in the face, Brothahan is the example, in so much as he wasn't immediately killed. The bullet had hit his cheek and exited through the ear, creating a vicious wound. If the bullet's trajectory had been even minutely altered by a shaking hand, a gust of wind, an exhaled breath, Brothahan would have been killed. It makes a man question whether it's luck, God, fate, or the random chaos of battle that determines life or death in combat. Of course, there is no answer. As it stood, the wound still threatened to bleed him out in short order, so I wrapped the gauze around Brothahan's head until his entire face was virtually covered, like you see in pictures of maimed and gassed soldiers from the trenches of the First World War. It's all I can do for him, I shouted at the two men who had been assigned to look after the wounded man. Tell him he's going to be okay. I never saw Brothahan again, but I did hear afterwards that he lived. There wasn't any time to dwell on Brothahan's fate. The fighting was getting heavier as the second Kurdish force was moving up the opposite flank of the hill, squeezing ISIS defenders between two pincer movements into a shrinking pocket of resistance at the very center of the high ground. My platoon pushed on and came to another opening in the western berm. Given what had happened at the last opening, we approached with caution and saw tire tracks rutted into the dirt, leading down the reverse slope. There was a small berm beside the tracks that was just big enough to offer the illusion of safety. A section of men well placed on this reverse slope would be able to wreak havoc and engage the enemy from behind. So our group split up into two wings. While the larger group maintained the advance up the main road, my smaller section ventured into the more exposed open ground of the western slope. It was a good plan, if only you ignored the risk. Being separated took us into dangerous ground with a heightened risk of being cut off if the attack failed, or, more likely, mistaken as the enemy and taken friendly fire. 
there had already been a lot of friendly fire that day due to poor communication systems, and I wasn't confident that it wouldn't happen again. Nevertheless, we continued picking our way carefully down the western slope, crouching low and maneuvering for cover as best we could. Everyone sensed our exposed position while on this dangerous ground. It was too much for some of the men, and half of the six-man detachment made a decision to go no further. I could hardly blame them. Venturing behind the enemy force posed inherent risks, let alone trigger-happy Kurds further up the hill who could easily mistake us for the enemy. Words were exchanged with the other two Kurds who were prepared to keep going, but nothing would move them, so the three of us continued on our own. It felt strange to be moving downhill when for the past hour we had been moving up, but the battle had changed and this rear-flanking movement offered the best chance of getting some more kills. I broke from some meager cover to get into a better position and realized my mistake right away. Immediately, the earth started spitting up around me from enemy fire. I dropped to the ground and spotted the enemy, two ISIS fighters about 140 meters away. I was their target, and their bullets struck all around my position, some within inches. For the briefest of moments, fear paralyzed my body and mind. I had been shot at before, but that was part of a massive charge where to the enemy, I was just another anonymous target. Here, I was the lone target, and it was personal. These two jihadis wanted my death. I don't know how long they waited before firing, but they chose their timing correctly and waited until I was at my most exposed and vulnerable, with nothing so much as a divot of earth to hide behind. There was nothing else to do but engage, and thankfully, my individual soldiering skills kicked in, and I started firing back. It felt like an eternity and a split second all at once, but the exchange was probably no more than 20 seconds. To my good fortune, the two ISIS fighters were not in a good position either. They were just as exposed as I was. They didn't expect to see a Kurdish force this far down the hill, and so close to their rear flank, so my appearance was almost as much of a surprise to them as theirs was to me. Luckily, they didn't have enough time to set up a proper ambush. I kept firing, feeling the butt of my rifle hammer against my shoulder, hoping for my bullets to make contact before theirs did. It was only a matter of time before someone was killed, and I could feel the odds being dialed up against me as the enemy rounds crept closer. There was no doubt in my mind that my marksmanship was probably superior to theirs, but they had two guns against my one. The two-to-one ratio flashed through my mind and didn't add up to good odds. Then suddenly, fate smiled on me like it has never done before and probably never will again. Perhaps their nerves broke from my fire, or maybe they saw something else that threatened their position. I'll never know for sure why the two ISIS fighters inexplicably rose from the ground. At first, I thought they were going to maneuver closer so as to get a better position on me, or set up a crossfire. I knew they might not need to move far for either scenario to come to pass. A few meters in either direction could be enough to provide the right angle to lay down accurate fire and a thought filled me with a dread I have never felt before. I waited for the inevitable, but then something happened. They turned and ran. Even now, when I replay this image of the two jihadis beginning to flee, I get emotional because I know that I had avoided imminent death. I stuffed my heart back down my throat and felt a surge of relief well deep inside my body because the jihadis had made a mistake. 
Their nerves had broken first in this high-stakes game. I saw their mistake and knew that they were already dead. It's like I could see with perfect clarity what was going to happen. The jihadis' lives ended as I knew they would. I took deliberate aim at the fighter in the lead and squeezed the trigger, watching as he went down in a heap to the ground. While on the run, the second jihadi turned to fire a wild and ineffective burst from his gun. I remained stoic and calm and lined up the sights of my M16 rifle. My finger pulled the trigger again and didn't stop until I saw the second target crumple. Two confirmed dead. They were my kills. And for better or worse, I'll always remember their shattered bodies. Later, I stood over the two bearded corpses and looked down at them. Mere moments before, they had been alive and trying to kill me. But now, they were dead. I allowed myself to think what they had thought before I shot and killed them. Maybe they weren't thinking anything, just reacting to the situation like I was. The first jihadi to go down had been hit in the head, and his brain was leaking out of a hole in his skull, which had been torn apart. The second had been pierced through his torso a couple of times. Chechen, Afghan, Arab, and African passports are often found amongst the dead ISIS fighters, but these two corpses were native to the Iraqi land in which they had fallen. While looking down on the two dead jihadis, I remembered exactly how I felt when I squeezed the trigger. Should I feel guilty for feeling so good at this very moment? Is there something wrong with me for feeling that this was the best thing I have ever accomplished? Any answer is going to sound feeble and glib if spoken by someone who has never had to pull a trigger. But men who have seen combat know the truth. In the mind's shadows, there is something profoundly intoxicating about having the power over life and death. There are a lot of strange feelings that go through your body and mind after killing in combat. It's hard to explain. Maybe it's futile to even try, and for good reason. But one thing is for sure. You are never again the same person after killing a man, even if it's a jihadi savage who had it coming. The Peshmerga credited me with two confirmed and four other probable kills at Tal Ward. Whether it was two or six doesn't really matter. What matters is that there are a few less ISIS fighters because of my actions, and that's something I'll be proud of and carry forever. 26 November, evening. The Soviet douche heavy machine gun had been silenced, and with it the last of the jihadis had either been killed or fled down the western slope, maintaining a fighting withdrawal that took advantage of the Kurds who had become careless in thinking the battle was over. In the rush to secure the hill, the Kurds had left the Dushk as it was found, pointing down the eastern slope towards the village of Talaward and the bridge over the stagnant canal. Smoke still trailed from its heated barrel, which protruded from a slit in a concrete bunker, and as the light faded, I examined how the lethal ground would have looked to the ISIS handlers. The gun was perfectly placed. The fighters would have been able to sweep the hillside and the bridge with ease. In more experienced hands, not a man could have crossed over the canal alive. Nevertheless, this Russian-forged weapon had on this day done what it was built for. The douche can take down a low-flying helicopter, so when its fist-sized rounds hits a soldier, the corpse is often unrecognizable. 
On this night, the streets of Erbil and Sulamanea would sound with the wails of widows and orphans because of this beast of war and the carnage it had unleashed. The Kurdish dead scattered across the field of battle was proof of this. Yet the gun was silent now and would do no more harm until the morrow when it would be turned around to face the enemy. The hill was now firmly in Kurdish hands, and in the half-light, men fired their weapons down the western slope into the next line of fortifications that lay beyond. Colored sparks blasted from rifle barrels, letting loose tracer rounds that raced across the empty land in search of victims. In the distance, pipelines streamed fire and black smoke. Dusk marched on, and the flares rocketed into the darkened sky, creating a surreal sight. The wounded had been carried away, their cries of agony heard only behind the lines, and in front, the enemy dead shadowed the ground. When the twilight surrendered to darkness, the rifle fire slowed and then virtually ceased. Aside from the odd rattle, the hill had gone quiet as the Kurds entrenched in the recaptured lines. There would be no surprise ISIS attack like the one on the previous night. They had been mauled badly and were patching their wounds 700 meters away in the same trenches they had started from the night before. As the Kurds dug in under the winter moon, enjoying tea and sweets left behind by the enemy, coalition airstrikes began rocketing the jihadist fallback positions in fierce explosions that shook the earth. The bombs turned night into day, and I felt the force of each blast pulsate through my body. There were too many airstrikes to count. ISIS was in the open getting pounded, and it was mesmerizing to see and hear. Sentries and small patrols kept watch at the front, prepared for a counterattack, but ISIS was done. I had survived the battle, saved a man's life, and killed the enemy. When the coalition planes finished their work for the night, we slept in the tents of our enemies. Somewhere a wild dog howled at the moon, and the field of battle was left to the dead. That was the Battle of Tala Ward. Chapter 8 The Worst Day of My Life 27 November 2014 The sleep of the victorious was sporadic and restless. The tents and makeshift sleeping quarters atop the hill at Tala Ward had changed hands twice in the last 24 hours and the brutal struggle for the high ground was seen everywhere. Blood stained the dirt berms and trenches, and countless spent rifle cartridges rolled under combat boots and glinted dull in the morning sun. There was trash everywhere, mainly empty water bottles and open latrines that stank like sewage drains. The night before, the Kurds had rifled through the enemy bags and packs left behind in search of food, but there was nothing except candy and sweets which caused pain on empty stomachs. The day's fighting had left me famished, but above all, I craved water. Yet there was none to be found, perhaps not surprising since I was in a desert. I remembered my own basic training in the Canadian Army, where your canteen had to be so full that it could literally not hold a single drop more of water, or some sergeant would take a giant crap on you. I should have heeded that advice but I had been too excited about the prospect of battle to worry about a canteen. One thing there was an abundance of was canned soft drinks, but I would have traded a flat of Coke or Sprite for just one mouthful of water in a heartbeat. Yet the Kurds were boiling tea, so there had to be water somewhere, 
and I couldn't understand why they would waste it on a hot drink when our throats were so parched. And the beds, if you could call them that, were just thin mats unrolled on the hard ground. ISIS fighters had laid their long, greasy black hair and beards on the same beds the night before, and the thought would have disgusted me if I hadn't been too tired to care. The mats were probably crawling with lice and bedbugs, but that was a problem that seemed small and unimportant after battle. At some point during the night, ISIS launched a small counterattack, but it was feeble and far enough away from my post to be of little concern. It was most likely a diversion of some kind or a show of force to keep the Kurds at bay. Still, it woke me from an already restless sleep. So too did the coalition planes roaring overhead as pilots delivered bombs that detonated just a kilometer away. The battle at Tel Award had left ISIS as a paper tiger in this sector, and I yearned for a fresh push against the enemy. But the Kurds retired from battle and sentry duty. I had taken my turn keeping watch atop the berm, but the land to my front was quiet, or so it seemed. There was not one pair of night or thermal vision goggles on the entire front, which was dangerous because the enemy had them. That's how ISIS had managed to surprise the Kurds at Tal Ward in the first place. One soldier able to see in the dark is a powerful weapon, and I strained my eyes into the night, worried with thoughts that I was being watched. But nothing happened, and when it was my turn, I tried to sleep with what little darkness was left. 27 November 2014 0700 hours Morning brought more exhaustion and thirst and hunger. The berm was stirring to life and I rolled from my mat and cleared the sleep from my eyes. PKKLE's soldiers started putting their battle gear back on and prepping their weapons, ready for what the new day might bring. The women in the 20-man unit did the same, one equipped with a homemade 50 caliber sniper rifle, the others with standard Kalashnikovs. I left the tent and kicked at the water bottles strewn on the ground with my boots, looking for a stray bottle that might have some water remaining. Word had spread about yesterday's casualties, and PKK Ali called the soldiers together to relay the news. Retaking Tal Ward had come at a cost of 30 Kurds killed in combat, with many more wounded, some seriously, like Brothahan. There was no way to be certain how many ISIS fighters had been killed or wounded. Some would have been carried back to their secondary lines, while others still lay on the field. In a war where corpses are often left to putrefy in the desert sun or be torn apart by wild dogs, comrades on both sides make efforts to bring the dead back to safety for proper burials. Yet undoubtedly, there were bodies left behind. In fact, some could be seen from the safety of the hill, so a patrol was needed to get a rough count of the enemy dead, and PKK Ali would be leading it. The unit would move over ground deemed secured, but the intersecting berms, trenches, and gullies at the base of the hill could easily hide enemy fighters left over from the night before. The 20 soldiers under PKK Ali's command would move down the western slope of the hill and sweep the front before re-entering Tala Ward on the reverse side. Essentially, we were going to circle the hill. If everything went well, we would be able to get a count of the enemy KIA and maybe gather some intelligence or find a wounded prisoner. Our force left the tents atop the berm and moved in a linear formation, single file down the western slope into the labyrinth of trenches and berms. 
Isis was only a kilometer away, so we kept our heads down and moved cautiously, aware that the enemy snipers would love to get revenge for the previous day's defeat. I heard the odd crack of solitary rifles, but Isis seemed just as happy to leave the patrol alone so long as we stayed at a safe distance. After all, they had been mauled at Tal Ward by the Kurds and then punished badly by the night's airstrikes. I looked at the black flags flying in the distance and wanted to make a push to rout the enemy. Now wasn't the time to let them catch their breath. We needed maximum aggression, despite fatigue and hunger, to annihilate the weakened enemy. That's the western style of warfare, but both sides were too tired to do anything more than conduct low-level intensity skirmishing. So the patrol moved on carefully, and the men allowed their rifle barrels to lower, sensing the exhaustion on both sides of the Iraqi no-man's land. Suddenly, PKK Ali clenched his fist, and it rose sharply, and the patrol stopped. There was something out of place. A body. But was it alive or dead? I took up a covering position as two men moved closer to the human lump, resting on the arid floor behind a small mound of dirt. The two Kurds shouldered their rifles and then began dragging the black-clad fighter to the protective safety of a nearby berm. At first, I thought that perhaps the combatant was still alive, but the thought vanished as the Kurds carelessly released their hold of the corpse and let it flop unceremoniously to the ground. The jihadist weapon had already been stripped, and a pilfering of his pockets revealed that they had already been emptied, or maybe there had been nothing of value to begin with. The man's face was heavily bearded, but his skin looked white, especially in comparison to the tanned Kurds who had manhandled the corpse. More rummaging revealed a tattered and ragged passport, the only thing of significance on the body. The Kurds flipped through the pages of the official documentation and discovered the man's Chechen nationality. The Chechen fighters in Iraq and Syria have a reputation. They are regarded as the toughest of the foreign recruits found in the ranks of ISIS. They know how to fight. It's no surprise given the history of their country. In the early 1990s, Chechnya was one of the many former Soviet satellite states to declare independence. Unfortunately for them, the new Russia wasn't about to give up its North Caucasus holdings without a fight. The first Russian army units to enter the Chechen capital of Grozny were torn apart in urban warfare. However, the Russian bear was merely catching its breath, and two years later, its conscript army lumbered back into the North Caucasus for a second time. Chechen fighters were driven from the major cities and fled to the mountains, where they began a decades-long guerrilla campaign. It was in these mountain redoubts that the Chechen struggle for independence morphed into an Islamic call to jihad. Militants from the Arab world flocked to Chechnya to help repulse the Russian invader. And now, the Chechens were returning the favor to their Islamic brethren in the Caliphate. Despite the lack of valuables on the dead Chechen, I let my mind wander to the faint hope that the next body would yield something more than a passport. I would have been happy to pick up a weapon that could be resold at a local market, or even better, get some cash or maybe a gold ring or necklace. The patrol came across ten corpses at the base of the hill but there was nothing of value on them except a few more foreign passports from Africa and one rifle. It wasn't clear whether the ISIS corpses had been cleared of their valuables by their own comrades or by the Kurds. Middle Eastern warfare is a lot like the American Wild West. Weapons and loot are claimed from the enemy dead by the man who made the kill or the first one on the scene. 
Given that incentive, the bodies found by PKK Ali's patrol could have easily been scavenged by the Kurdish soldiers during the night, leaving me empty-handed. If I were with the Canadian Army, the dead would not have been looted. But the rules of war in Iraq are different from those that have been enforced by the Canadian forces in Afghanistan. The dead jihadis were essentially the same, dressed in a mixture of black garb and Kurdish civilian clothing. Their hair was long, black, and greasy just like their beards, and all were seemingly in their early to mid-thirties. These weren't the indoctrinated child soldiers you read about, but rather men of prime fighting age in terms of strength and fitness. There was something unusual about them. Each had a red ribbon tied around his arm, like a band. I found out later that these red armbands indicated that these fighters belonged to what ISIS considers an elite unit. They would have received better training and been in possession of better weapons. Perhaps this explains why they were able to initially overrun the Kurdish forces at Talal Ward. Each body was pulled to some form of cover to be dealt with later, and then the patrol began circling to the eastern side of the hill, into the village. The cluster of huts and walled narrow streets was exactly as I remembered, cramped and littered with garbage. The fighting had scared most of the locals off, creating an atmosphere of unnatural silence for an urban setting. We searched backyards, wells, gardens, fences and walls, but nothing was found. Then I heard a commotion ahead. My GoPro camera was turned off to conserve battery life, but I turned the chest-mounted device back on and started recording. I rounded the corner to see members of the patrol pointing their rifles at a man who had appeared in the doorway of a home. The man's arms were up, and he waved a greeting to the Kurds, but I could tell from the body language of the patrol members that this was not a friendly encounter. Looks like we're taking a prisoner, I said into the camera. The man went to take a step from the doorway, and as soon as his body moved, the Kurds unleashed a torrent of gunfire that exposed his insides to the air. He fell in a heap to the ground, blood pouring from the multiple holes in his body. I was speechless, shocked by the killing, and I fumbled frantically to turn off my camera. If PKKLE's men knew I had recorded the killing, a world of trouble would have descended upon me. The red light on the camera was a giveaway. I scrambled with shaking hands to turn it off. It amounted to murder, as far as I was concerned. There had been no warning shot. They could have even shot the man once in the leg, but they literally blew him away instead. The patrol did not waste time, moving on with haste and leaving the corpse behind. PKK Ali and Agar hadn't been the ones to fire, and it looked like they were angry with the actions of their men. I kept up with the fast-moving Kurds who wanted to put distance between themselves and the scene of the crime, but I stole a last look behind my shoulder. The man's wife and several children emerged from the same doorway and beheld their dead husband and father. A part of me wishes I had not taken that last look. I wake up many nights hearing the screams of the man's kids and wife, and whenever I think about it, I have to fight back tears. The cries of those kids were sounds so terrible that you don't want to imagine them. It's the worst thing I have ever heard. It didn't take long for the Kurds to begin making excuses and justifications for the killing, mostly for the benefit of me, their Canadian companion. 
When the patrol cleared the village and we started making our way up the hill, word started spreading that the man was an Arab, not a Kurd, as if that gave them license for the deed. Mimicking an explosion, the men gestured as if to say that he could have been wearing a suicide vest. I didn't buy it, but it was better to go along with the unconvincing claim. PKK Ali and his men didn't want the rest of the Kurdish force to know about what had happened, and if I were suspected of leaking the event or talking to someone in the Peshmerga, it would spell trouble for me. I tried to push the thought from my mind and carry on with the mission, but it was impossible to forget the casualness of taking what was likely an innocent life. It wasn't a cold-blooded murder, but rather an instinctual response to the slightest possibility of danger. I couldn't comprehend it, but I wasn't in Canada. This was Iraq, and the rules of war did not exist in this land. This is what happens when civilization retreats. Men become animals, and the slightest provocation demands a deadly response. I felt a quiet remorse as the patrol reached the berm. Flats of water were stacked in the back of a truck, providing me with a needed distraction. I grabbed two bottles and drank greedily, then popped some Tylenol to help with the headache that had been induced by dehydration. I snagged a few more plastic bottles from my pack and then filled my canteen to the brim. My sergeant in basic training would have approved. The platoon used the downtime to eat stale bread and then got some rest in the tents. We would be leaving Tel Award later that afternoon, but there was one more task to take care of. The Kurdish dead from the previous day had been transported back to the camp at K-1, but the enemy dead were still strewn on the ground. In this war, when a corpse is exposed to the dangers of enemy fire, it can rot for weeks, months even, until its bones are picked clean by dogs and vultures. But the jihadi dead at Tel Award were far enough away from ISIS to be properly disposed of, and I volunteered for the job. I wanted to get away from PKK Ali and his men. I hadn't trusted them before, and I certainly didn't trust them now, not after the murder. There was no enthusiasm amongst the Kurds for the job. They wanted rest, and would have been happy to let the jihadis rot in the sun, but I sighed with relief when selected for burial detail. I stalked off quickly, rifle shouldered, relishing the distance that each step took me from the platoon. I wanted to get away from them, not just now, but forever. Twenty dead ISIS fighters lined the ground, and nearby a bulldozer started its engine, coughing out a black plume of diesel smoke into the air. The heavy machine's tracks rolled over the desert, and then the operator tilted the bucket to make the first scrape into the ground. The bulldozer backed off, and we dragged the first dead jihadi to the lip of the trench and dumped him unceremoniously inside. The dead move in weird ways, and the corpse's limbs flopped around loosely and in countless unnatural motions. His greasy hair mixed with the dried-out earth. It was not a glamorous end, but at the very least, the jihadi would be under the earth within the window of time prescribed by Islamic law. It was a lot more than many of the fallen in Iraq receive. I worked with a half-dozen other Kurds as we flung more corpses, one at a time, into the mass grave. Agar lit a cigarette and then began retrieving another limp jihadi by the shoulders. This one wore black and had a piece of his skull missing. I stared and recognized the dead man as one of my own kills from the previous day. Agar paused, 
letting me grab hold of the man's ankles, and together we hefted him into the pit of death. The jihadi stank of feces and urine, and I watched without pity as he tumbled into his final resting place, his crumpled head and body landing onto the earth. If there were 72 virgins waiting for him in heaven, then I would have to account to God for the killing. But if there is an afterlife, surely this man would find a place in hell where he would account for the crimes and the atrocities of the Islamic State. The dead had already been searched and pillaged several times over since their last breaths, so there was no point in doing anything else but dumping the bodies. The other ISIS dead, all of them bearded and scraggly looking, were deposited into the same pit, and then the bulldozer's engine coughed back to life. The big blade went to work, scraping and pushing the dirt back and forth until the corpses were covered by a rough mound of sand and earth. The operator drove over the impromptu grave slowly one last time, letting the weight of the machine compress the earth, and then killed the engine. The job was done. The bodies were gone forever, and soon forgotten. I wondered at how many unmarked graves could be found in this country. Too many to count. Perhaps, like in Flanders and northern France, farmers in Kurdistan will one day find the bones of old fighters popping up in their fields, and they will look at them as relics from a past age of gruesome violence. Maybe one day, but I just doubt it. Just like I doubted the mass grave at my feet would be remembered, though I hoped it would. Not for any moral or sacred reasons, but for sanitation purposes. The village was nearby, and if ever peace returned to Tal Award, the locals would need to know where not to dig a well, or build a school, or let their kids play. But this was Iraq, and the idea of a school being built in a land where death and survival supersede all else is almost laughable. The burial detail left the buried corpses behind and returned to the top of the berm. More white pickup trucks were coming and leaving Talao Ward, bringing fresh troops to the front and relieving those who had been through hell. More important, they carried water and food supplies, and I helped myself to some bread and a plastic bottle of water. PKKLE's soldiers had stacked their belongings in a pile and were waiting patiently along the sunken road, some smoking, others resting their eyes. My suspicion of them was growing, and I hastily found my pack in the pile and shouldered it along with my rifle. I trusted Lieutenant Ali and the Peshmerga to respect my belongings, but not these guys. For all I knew, they had rifled my belongings while I was burying the dead. Not that they would find anything useful. My computer would be a real prize, and it had been left back at the base, unguarded, which made me uneasy. Yet there was no point worrying about it now, as something was happening. PKKLE was lounging in the seat of a nearby pickup truck, talking on his phone in a carefree tone. He poked his head out from the window, called out something in Kurdish to his men, and then made a circular motion with his index finger. The platoon started gathering their kits, and moments later, a front-end loader rolled up to their position, ready to taxi the men off the berm to the canal, where trucks were waiting to convoy them back to Camp K-1. I hopped into the dirty bucket with two other men and braced myself for the jostling trip down the berm. I turned my GoPro camera on to get some final footage of the aftermath of the battle and captured the tents made out of blue tarps, satellite dishes, 50-gallon water bottles, white trucks, some with their tires and windows blown out, and a stream of new soldiers arriving to take up their rotation at the front. I panned the camera to take it all in as we rolled away slowly. The Kurd next to me started shouting and waving his hands in the air, No, no, no! 
is what he was probably saying. I shot him a look as if to say, back off, I can video what I want, which agitated the man even more. Man, these people, I thought, while finishing the pen. I turned the camera off and settled back into the bucket, thankful to be leaving the village, thankful to be heading back to base, and hopeful that I could get away from PKK Ali's platoon.